Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In a normal school year, parents would be dragging their kids to stores right about now, going over school lists and making them try on new clothes. But nothing about 2020 has been normal, and a number of Idaho families are still wondering how they'll balance blended school schedules or long-term online learning. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News gives us an update on how school districts and higher ed institutions are planning to start the school year. Shiva Rajmandari gives us a student's perspective on distance learning and Rachel Roberts of the Idaho Statesman discusses her COVID-19 data tracking. But first, on Thursday, Governor Brad Little announced that, once again, Idaho didn't meet the criteria to advance past stage four of reopening Idaho. But despite this, he told Idahoans that he still expects most schools to reopen for in-person instruction in the next few weeks. School operations will not look the same across the state based on virus activity and healthcare capacity in specific communities. However, when students are out of the classroom for too long, the achievement gap widens. This gap draws down the progress of all students. This gap is detrimental to economic prosperity and future workforce demands. This gap inhibits an educated populace, which is critical to a successful democratic republic. Despite the incredible advances in digital learning, we can't even run this thing, you can never replace the value and impact of in-person interaction with professional dedicated teachers. The expectation is that schools will not be closed for extended periods of time during the 2021 academic year. At the press conference, Governor Little emphasized the amount of CARES Act money that has gone to schools to facilitate safe reopening, as well as to address the digital divide. That money includes $10 million for masks, gloves, and plexiglass, $48 million for computers and connectivity, and $21 million for teacher and staff testing. Little also said that in many parts of the state, schools shouldn't have to close for long periods of time. Still, even short-term closures and staggered schedules affect the ability of parents and guardians to work full-time. And trust me, I'm speaking from experience here. On Friday, I spoke to Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News about school district reopenings across the state, higher education, and the upcoming special legislative session. Thanks so much for joining us today. Let's talk about Thursday's press conference with Governor Little and the resources that he said he was directing to schools for safe reopening. Right. I mean, I think it was a recap of a lot of appropriations that have already been made, that have already been announced in a lot of cases, like the, the money for testing teachers. That's not new. That was approved a couple of weeks ago by the governor's committee looking at CARES Act money. So not really new money, but sort of a recap of 
how much the state has put into trying to safely reopen schools, trying to reopen schools. And I think there was a, you know, an attempt here to assure parents and assure teachers that uh, the state is trying to have a handle on this and trying to reopen schools in a safe manner. You know, considering that this isn't new money, who do you think the audience was? Was it parents? Was it the school boards who were making these decisions? Or was it the media as part of this uh, messaging effort? I think it was all of the above. I think uh, the governor is trying to uh, convey a sense of normalcy with, with parents and with school administrators. He, he pointed out on numerous occasions that he had you know, worked the room at the uh, school administrators conference in downtown Boise Thursday morning. Uh, trying to point out that you know he's he, you know he supports superintendents and their efforts to try to reopen. I, I think that there was a lot of appeal to parents that uh, that there is a plan in place, that there is a not just an expectation that schools are going to open, but a, a belief that they can do this uh, safely. And you know there was some scolding of the media, frankly, uh, where I, I think the governor unfairly and inaccurately suggested that. Uh, the media is focusing only on the case numbers and not on the, the bigger trends with coronavirus. And those bigger trends with coronavirus really affect what's going to happen with schools and really what, what happens with all of, uh, with, with everything in Idaho as far as reopening. You know, it's funny that you say that because I, as somebody who looks at the at the numbers and the trends every single day, I feel like journalists have had to do a lot of legwork to add context to these numbers that are provided by the state, sometimes without any context at all. Right, I think it's been a, a, a struggle for a lot of us in the media and you know, folks who've been working really hard at this, like, like our, our, our friends and colleagues at the Idaho Statesman who have really pushed the state hard and, and successfully to you know, get more information from the state, get information about long, you know, long-term care facilities, get information about Latinos and, and, and the Latino population and the incidence rate in, in that community. Those are numbers that the state did not willingly release and, and make easily accessible to the public. And you now we're still on a daily basis, you, you and I and other reporters around the state trying to sort out, okay, what is the incident rate here? What is the positivity? What, you know, what do the case numbers look like? What's happening with hospitalizations and, and deaths? And trying to put that into, in, in, into context. What I do every week is a, a trend line that looks at what happened week over week in, in all of these numbers and in the counties where we've had higher case numbers. You know, and, and a lot of the focus has been on Treasure Valley, of course, because that's where so much of the state's population is and also is the hottest of hotspots right now in Idaho. And the two biggest districts in the state made big decisions this week uh, regarding safe reopening of their schools. They really did. And you know, I think as we talk about this statewide issue of school reopening, let's focus on the Treasure Valley because in a the, the numbers in the Treasure Valley put this whole debate into an interesting, uh, interesting context as well. West Data delayed its opening and will go to some sort of, probably to some sort of either blended learning in September or online learning in September. They haven't decided yet. That's 40,000 kids right there. The Boise School District, as you well know, <laughs> is going online for all 25,000 Kids, not just the 4,000 kids who are already going to go online for the semester or the year because that's what the parents have signed on to. 
25,000. And to be clear, that 4,000 number was as of Tuesday. And yeah. we don't know, as we're discussing this on Friday morning, we don't know right now how many more families said, you know what, I'm going to sign up before that Friday deadline. At least 4,000 kids are going to be in online school in Boise. That's a big school district in and of itself. I mean, if you just broke that out, that's uh, the size of uh, almost the size of a like CUNA school district or, or a Caldwell district. And speaking of those districts, CUNA, Caldwell, Nampa are all going to either a blended approach or an online only approach. You add all of that up, that's about 100,000 kids in the Treasure Valley are going to be either exclusively online or some sort of a blend of online and face-to-face -face learning. That's a third of the kids in K-12 in the state. That's a huge number. And it, and it suggests to me that as much as Governor Little wanted to try to convey a sense of normalcy and a sense of control, this issue is being decided at the local level. And in some ways, I think he's not in control of this. Uh, the local administrators are seeing the on-the-ground realities and seeing it very differently. They're hearing from the health districts. They're taking that you know, local advice from the health officials to heart. Uh, for all of the governor's talk about reopening schools uh, and the expectation of reopening schools, it's, I, I don't think it's going to happen to a great extent around the state. Well, and let's talk about the rest of the state because a lot of these school districts plans include things like staggered schedules or blended learning models. And to be clear, that's still a big burden on families who are trying to juggle work schedules. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, and one of the things we saw in the spring, and I'm afraid we're going to see it again in the fall, is that when you go to a blended learning approach or an online learning approach, that affects different families differently, and it affects different students differently. There are some families, there are some parents who are in a position where they can simply work more with their kids to keep them on and on a schedule. There are, you know, there are parents who have the luxury or the option of working from home. So they can at least try to juggle work with educating their kids. Difficult juggle, I'm not trying to downplay it in the slightest, but at least you're there, at least you're physically there. Single parents or parents who have a job that you simply can't do from home, you know, you're gonna have to leave those kids at home to work through it as best they can. And we, and we know that that is a, a big obstacle for kids. And we know that that was a problem in the spring. And we know going into it this fall that it's going to be a problem for kids. And as we're talking about some of these rural districts outside of Treasure Valley throughout the state, some of these rural counties have consistently seen the highest weekly incidence rates when we're talking about those raw case numbers. Um, and I'm thinking places like Minidoka County, Payette County, Washington County. Um, these are rural counties that have seen for their population uh, a huge amount of COVID-19 spread. Exactly. Counties like, like the ones you listed, we've seen kind of the steady increase in case numbers through the spring and through the summer. It doesn't seem to be letting up. And what we've also seen, and I, I fear we're going to see it again you know, in, in the fall and beyond, we know how quickly you can have an outbreak, whether it's centered around a food manufacturing plant or a long-term care facility or a school. I think inevitably you're going to see an outbreak tied to a school. I'm afraid there's just no getting around that. And we've seen how quickly those numbers can spike in a rural community. So, you know, we're a long way out on this. And just what we've seen 
right now. And just the response that we're seeing from school districts tells you that it's, it's going to be a very different school year again. Well, let's talk about higher education. What are you hearing from um, the universities and colleges? Well, I'm working on a story that we're going to publish next week, uh, trying to look at what does enrollment look like uh, on, on the campuses this fall? And by way of context, this is an issue that's getting a lot of national attention. National studies going back to the spring suggested that colleges and universities could expect a 20% enrollment drop. 20%. And when you think about a state like Idaho, where colleges and universities are very dependent on tuition and fees to pay the bills, we've consciously moved the cost of higher education to parents and students. When you do that, you really need students walking in the door. And if you lose 20% of your students, you lose a sizable chunk of your revenue. What's going to happen with Idaho higher education? We don't know yet. We don't know the hard numbers. It does not look like it's going to be as dire as a 20% drop off. What I'm hearing from the universities suggests that there, there may be a drop off, but it may be in, you know, much less than 20%. It might be a 3% drop off is what the Idaho State University is looking at. It might be in the five-ish percent uh, number for the University of Idaho. They don't know yet. Boise State doesn't really know what to expect yet. College of Western Idaho, fast growing community college. They don't know what to expect because just by nature of community colleges, kids show up at the last minute. They sign up a week or two ahead of the, the semester. So they don't know what to expect yet. So we don't know what to expect. It doesn't look like it's going to be as cataclysmic as it sounded like it was going to be in the spring, but it's still, it's still significant. You know, you, you lose 5% um, of your student body at the University of Idaho, let's say, and that's several hundred students. That's tuition and fees from several hundred students. And this is, of course, with the backdrop of uh, already huge concerns from the universities and colleges about funding, um, which, of course, has ripple effects through the community, especially in places like Pocatello and Moscow, where there are a number of, of members of the community who are employed by those universities. When I had the chance to talk to Scott Green uh, myself this week, uh, we talked about the financial stake at the University of Idaho if you go online only. He pencils that out to a $33 million loss if you have to go from face-to-face -face learning to online learning. Lost revenue, housing, room and board, parking, all of the things that students pay for when they're on a campus, you lose all of that revenue. And you, you've sunk, for lack of a better word, a lot of money into trying to make the campus safe by you know, coming up with a testing regime for, for staff and students coming up with thermal stations that you can set up so you can check uh, temperatures as people walk in. That's a lot of money, $33 million. So, you know, there is obviously, there's a learning component to trying to keep uh, campuses open. You know, colleges want kids in classrooms getting the education that they paid for and they expect and, and they deserve. But there's also a huge financial stake for the colleges and universities to stay open. And they're, you know, make no mistake, they've, they've got a lot of money riding on what happens here. You know, everything comes back to funding. Let's talk about the upcoming special session uh, that Governor Little announced that he intends to call for the week of August 24th. Um, there are a lot of education issues tied up into potential uh, proposals that are going to be put before lawmakers that week. Yeah, it's still a work in progress as far as we can all tell. But uh, one thing that I think we almost 
certainly are going to see is legislation regarding liability issues for schools and for other entities. Uh, some sort of a you know, shielding of uh, schools from potential lawsuits if there's a coronavirus case or outbreak that's linked to a campus. We already have legislation in place. There's already been an RS that uh, the Judiciary Committee members have, have signed off on. So that's taking some shape. And I think, as the governor alluded to yesterday, there's some you know, language coalescing around elections and you know, election legislation. Education, the, the Education Committee's, uh, their working group met last week. They had a menu of topics that they kind of like to see discussed in a special session, but it's not really clear how that's going to take shape, if it's going to take shape, because nobody wants a, a marathon <laughs> special session. Nobody wants a special session that goes several days. The idea is come in, pass a couple of bills that we absolutely have to have right now that can't wait until January and get out of town again. So we'll see. There's nothing stopping the governor from calling a second special session if the Education Committee doesn't have RSs ready by August 24th, right? No, uh, the governor can call as many special sessions as, as, he, choose, as he wants to. And the state has put more than a million dollars into technology that's supposed to make it easier for legislators to do their work remotely, whether they are doing that remotely within the state house or remotely from home. So the option of doing a, um, a remote special session in August or maybe even another special session between now and January, that's certainly on the table. Another update uh, for this ongoing saga of Reclaim Idaho and its attempts to get a ballot initiative um, in front of voters for November on public education funding. Last week, of course, the Supreme Court ordered Reclaim Idaho to stop collecting signatures online, siding with the state in that. Uh, what's the latest? It was a very significant ruling from the Supreme Court. I mean, it, it stopped the signature gathering process in its tracks and, and put it on hold. We're three months out from the election. This is still playing itself out in the circuit court. The circuit court is going to have a hearing next week on the initial Reclaim Idaho lawsuit, the initial claim that the state violated Reclaim's First Amendment rights by shutting off the signature gathering process in March at the beginning of the outbreak. That still has to work its way through the circuit court. No clear time frame on when that court would rule. And no matter what comes out of the circuit court, if the circuit court rules in favor of Reclaim Idaho, the state has the option and has made clear that it would exercise that option to appeal to the Supreme Court again, to have the Supreme Court look at the constitutional issues that are being considered right now by the circuit court. So this is a, a long and complicated process. And at the end of the day, I think it makes it next to impossible for uh, the Reclaim Idaho initiative to make its way under the ballot this year. And meanwhile, public schools, just like so many, all state agencies, in fact, um, are facing budget cuts. The 5% budget cuts across the board, that's about a $99 million hit for, for K-12. All right. Kevin Richard, Idaho Education News, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Thank you. Anytime. Across Idaho, especially in communities with uncontrolled spread of the virus, families and teachers are divided on whether schools should open for in-person learning. 
during an August 4th Boise School District Board of Trustees meeting. More than 40 parents, students, and educators testified, expressing concerns about the quality of online education, community health, and childcare shortages. After two hours of testimony, the board opted for a virtual start to the school year with a planned reassessment after about two weeks. Boise School District student Shiva Rajbandari and his father Ajit Rajbandari both encouraged the board to wait to reopen schools despite some of the difficulties distance learning has posed for their family. I spoke to Shiva and Ajit on Friday morning for their perspective. Like Veronica said in, in that in that testimony, you can't guarantee that that a student's not going to die. And I mean, you can you can almost be sure that someone in our district, you know, twenty six thousand people, someone is going to get coronavirus and not recover and that you know is it really can can is the board really able to make that sacrifice that um to open schools at, at the cost of of lives at the cost of countless lives and so and i i think the answer to that's no and we can we can wait a year you know my dad when when he was growing up in nepal he went a year without without school during the, there was a revolution and he went without school and so then he had to make that up the next year and you know that's that's an unfortunate thing that our whole generation is going to be going through and that's it's true it will it will impact us but i think we can recover from that but you can't recover from from dying for more with shiva and ajit go to the idaho reports facebook page Every single day for months, I've checked the Idaho coronavirus website for the latest COVID-19 numbers so I can post updates to social media and record them for Idaho Public Television. And one of the most frequent questions I receive is why the numbers I report are sometimes different than other media outlets. The answer, I get my numbers directly from the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare, while some other reporters get their numbers directly from the state's seven public health districts. There's no uniform reporting requirement for those seven public health districts to get their numbers to the state every day, so sometimes those numbers differ. None of us are wrong or inaccurate, and the numbers always eventually even out, but those disparities are one of the many, many frustrations that Idaho journalists face while trying to track Idaho coronavirus trends and outbreaks. I sat down with one of the other reporters who faithfully checks those numbers every day, Rachel Roberts of the Idaho Statesman, to get insight into what she and her team have had to do to give their readers a comprehensive picture of COVID-19 activity in Idaho. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you give us a quick overview of the daily tracking you do at the Idaho Statesman? Well, we, re we realized pretty early that there were a lot of things that we wanted to keep track of. So I currently have a 43-page Google Doc that grows in length every day. I have four spreadsheets that we update on a daily basis. We've got four different graphics. Just a lot of things that we, you know, we go to all the individual health district websites and just try to update everything, every little detail, we're probably keeping track of it. You and I have commiserated about this before, but there are a lot of inconsistencies in the numbers that we see between what the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare puts out and what the seven public health districts put out every day. Yes, that can be a frustrating part of this reporting. You know, you'll go to the Panhandle Health District and see numbers for one of the counties that doesn't match what the state is saying. 
And, and it makes it hard for people to necessarily think, well, which one's right? Who's telling the truth? Uh, so I find that to be a little bit frustrating. The deaths is one that's even harder for me. You know, you and I discussed this the other day. It, it's strange to me when, when the state will say, oh, we only have two deaths today, but Ada County is reporting four. So it would be nice if those things would be streamlined, but I know this is a, a difficult process for everybody that's involved right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's one of those things where I understand that everybody is trying to build this plane as we're flying it. And there are so many different government agencies that have these numbers, but that just means more work for you and um, your fellow editor, Chad Kripe, putting together all of this information and adding context to these daily numbers every day. Right. Uh, we have, <laughs> there's about four standing files that we update every single day on IdahoStatesman.com. That includes from the very first case that got announced in March, and you can go through every single day until, you know, yesterday, and we'll update it again today. And you can look at the cases for every county. We have a standing file that updates all of the deaths. Um, we have a map that we go through with all of that. And of course, then we have reporters like Audrey Dutton, who does in-depth stories on things about the long-term care facilities that are going through so much of a difficulty trying to protect their, their residents. And uh, Nicole Foy, who does a lot of stuff on uh, minorities and, and how this crisis has affected the Latino population. So uh, much context as we can on a daily basis, for sure. Hey, what information do you wish the state or these public health districts would provide to make this reporting a little bit easier for you? Well, one of the things that I would really like to see is the addition of the once the governor presents that gating criteria at the end of each of these press conferences, it would be nice to see that data then updated on the website. I know they put out a PDF that we can kind of see the numbers, but a lot of times it's with a graph. So you kind of have to guess, well, is it five or is it seven sort of a thing? So I would like to see that added. Um, it would be nice if all of the districts had a uniformity in uh, presenting the positivity percentage, because some districts do that and, and some don't. I think we also have a lot of counties that have you know, a greater positivity percentage than maybe some of the smaller ones, you know, in the same district. So it would like to see a breakdown of, you know, the positivity percentage by county even, or I mean city even, if we could. Yeah, I, I know that that's something that's been on my wish list because just living in Ada County, we know that there's a big difference between downtown Boise and CUNA. They're different populations and they're gonna be different factors into high positivity rates in each of those communities. Correct. And, and we have people ask us about that on a regular basis. And, it, and it's hard when you can't, when you have to tell someone, you know, I don't know. Um, we can, we certainly try and ask anytime we have a question, you know, we'll, that a reader poses to us and we don't know the answer, you know, we'll go to the health district. So we'll go to health and welfare. And I'm sure that those public information officers are, are inundated with folks like you and I that are, that are constantly asking them questions. Absolutely. Uh, you know, as schools reopen, as we transition into the fall, what are some of the things that you're going to be looking for in those numbers? Well, obviously, we want to see those numbers go down. You know, you keep hoping every day that, that you know, the numbers are going to decrease. And I thought maybe over the weekend, uh, the numbers did get a little bit smaller. But then, you know, we had our, depending on what data you use, you know, second highest or third highest number um, of all time yesterday. So, you know, you also want to see that positivity percentage drop. Uh, the state would ideally like it under five. Um, it's it's way up there, much higher than that now, um, more than double. So those are things that I that I think are important and would be nice to see drop. 
<laughs> smaller numbers in general. <laughs> we'll keep crossing our fingers. Rachel Roberts, Idaho Statesman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for watching. For updated numbers and analysis throughout the week, make sure you're following Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter. And remember, Idaho Reports is now available in podcast form. You can get audio updates and online extras by searching for Idaho Reports and subscribing on your favorite podcast platform, including Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Again, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week and stay safe. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.